1: If an issue comes to be seen as associated with a president, such that that president's performance in office is benchmarked against their ability to resolve that issue, then that sets off that political incentive on the opposing party, which is we can't give the president a win.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So through December, we're going to be doing a mix of new shows and a couple best ofs. Uh, And the best ofs are going to be either shows that I really, really love and want to be able to put back out into the world and into the feed, or they're going to be shows that I think have a particular resonance to what is happening right now. So this is a best of show. Please enjoy. My guest today is someone I have really wanted to have on around the dawn of a new Congress because her work has influenced me tremendously in how I think about divided government in particular, but but Congress and, and its relationship with the presidency in general, is Frances Lee. Uh, she's a political scientist at the University of Maryland. She just wrote a fascinating new book called Insecure Majorities, Congress and the Perpetual Campaign. Her book before that, which is called Beyond Ideology, is one of like the three or five political science books I recommend most often. And what she's showing in, um, in in this new book is that we're in a period that is genuinely different from what most periods in American political life have been like. We're in a period of competition, where control of Congress and the presidency is changing hands constantly, where landslides almost never happen. Um, certainly presidential landslides seem to have stopped happening. We don't have outcomes like we had, say, in 1984 anymore. Nobody's quite sure why, but her book is looking at how an era of intense, constant competition, how an era where every party is constantly a potential majority and minority— how that changes political behavior. And I think she makes a very convincing case that it changes it profoundly, that this period of competition is behind a lot of what has changed in American politics in a way that we don't always know how to integrate into our models or integrate into our thinking. It seems like competition is always the order of the day, but but it really hasn't been. And... I, I think there's incredible explanatory power here, and I think it's very tactically important for understanding why Democrats in Congress are going to act like they will in the next couple of years, why Republicans are going to act like they will in the next couple of years, and also how Donald Trump both will act and should act and could act, um, and maybe what he doesn't quite understand about presidential rhetoric and leadership in an era of divided, highly competitive government. Um, this is a very, very, I think, helpful episode. Here is Francis Lee. Francis Lee, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Ezra. Glad to be here.
2: Your book argues that we are in this unusual era of political competition. Persuade me, as somebody who grew up in this era, that, that something is different in politics right now, that you know, having control of the presidency and Congress swinging back and forth all the time, that that, that, that isn't just the natural state of American life.
1: Well, it's true. That's, it's been the natural state of American life for more than three decades now. You know, we've had
2: continually
1: close elections. We haven't had a presidential landslide since 1984. We've had divided government 75% of the time since 1980. And, you know, looking at the composition of the Congress, the Democrats and the Republicans have each held control of the House of Representatives um, ten for 10 Congresses during the post-1980 period uh, in the Senate. You have Republicans having a majority in 11 Congresses and Democrats in nine since then. So a very even balance of power. But if you look back before 1980, you see a quite different pattern. If you stretch back through the 20th century, the conventional wisdom was that the Democrats were the natural majority party of the country. They held a unified government a lot of the time. They held control of the Congress almost continually between 19, uh, 1932 and 1980 in the Senate and between 1932 and 1994 in the House of Representatives. If you go back before 1932, the dominant pattern was that Republicans were in control of national government most of the time uh, at, you know, after the Civil War, for a decade after the Civil War, and then again after 1894, up through the New Deal. The Republicans were seen as sort of the natural um, uh, party of national government. So this long era of close party competition with narrow majorities and switching majorities, we take that for granted is just how American politics works. And it's true that that's been the case since since 1980. So for a, a lot of our lifetimes, it's, or, or, or at least a, the, the period when we've been able to pay attention to politics. So most, most folks uh, attending to politics today, that's been something they can sort of take for granted. But it is unusual in the context of U.S. political history.
2: But in some theoretical way, shouldn't this be how American politics works? I mean, Aren't we all taught that if one party is out of power for long enough, they'll change and find what it is they need to adapt themselves into so they'll become the party in power? Like, how did we have these long periods of politics where where that wasn't happening, where one party or the other couldn't just, like, look what was the popular parts of the party in powers program or the unpopular parts and adapt themselves to uh, take advantage of of the you know the the natural kind of trade offs and unpopularity inherent in governing.
1: Well, it's a it's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think you know, we don't have we don't have a lot of uh, variation to shed light on the the those patterns. In as much as we had you know a very long stretch of Republican dominance followed by a very long stretch of mostly Democratic dominance. I think you can't understand those long eras of uh, one-party control except in light of exogenous shocks to the political system. So the long Republican majority of the uh, post-Civil War and early 20th century can only be understood in light of the fallout from the Civil War and the Democratic Party being discredited as the party of treason. And then as Democrats finally began to regain their footing, after 1876, they came into control under Grover Cleveland and then the Panic of 1893. And so an economic crisis then discredited the, the performance of Democrats once they had, had begun to return to competitiveness. As we look to the long Democratic majority of the 20th century, that can only be understood in light of the Great Depression and the discrediting of the uh, Republicans, We were in power when the when the the crisis struck, and then uh, Democratic majorities were preserved, our, our Democratic control was preserved in part because of World War II. So, in in light of those two big shocks, so two series of crises, war and economic crisis, led to. A, a lack of real choice for voters in that one party didn't seem to offer a viable alternative.
2: So I, I know the meat of this is about how competition changes the way parties behave. And I want to get to that in a second. But I'm so like nerdily fascinated by <laughs> by, by, by this piece of it. So I wanted to try an idea out on you and, and see what you thought of it. It seems right to me that at the presidential level, American politics has always been more competitive. As you say, we used to have landslides, which like as recently as 84, and we don't seem to now. And I think that's very interesting. And I've never heard a good explanation for why. But nevertheless, like, you know, in these periods we're talking about when you had, say, 40 years of uninterrupted Democratic control of the House, you had a lot of Republican presidents during that period. That It seems like, is it fair to say that Congress has had, is where a lot of that party stability has been located?
1: has yes, more party stability, no doubt, uh, in control of Congress than uh, the, of the presidency. His presidency m- m- has been more competitive throughout the throughout that whole period.
2: So, what I think about that, like what that seems to imply to me, is that nationalized politics. National level politics is more competitive than more local or regional politics. That in you know more local or regional politics, you have you know this was my daddy's party and my daddy's daddy's party. And you know in in the South for a very long time, you'd yeah you, you could say what you want about the Republicans, but uh, or about the Democrats, but at least they didn't invade us and you know put us under military rule for a period of time. So local and regional and congressional politics seems to have much more idiosyncratic factors. It can be a lot stickier, and I. I I wonder how much the increase in competitiveness has to do with the nationalization of all politics. I mean, it's much remarked on and I think much shown in political science that Congressional elections are much more nationalized than they used to be. That the old Tip O'Neill, all politics is local, just isn't true anymore. That now people are voting based on sort of their increasingly their views of the of the national political party, and that that has to do with a more nationalized media and and all these different things that we know and the the breakdown of local papers, and you know we can we can talk about it for hours. But that you know is this just national politics is more competitive, and as we're nationalizing all politics, it's just all getting more.
1: No, I, I, I. I this is this a speculative? It's you know hard to disentangle these causal relationships over you know, these long periods of time. But in my view, I think nationalization is a great part of a function of increased competition. That the national stakes involved now in congressional elections are heightened because party control is in play it didn't used to matter who would win any particular house race because it seemed that uh, you know the only real question in that case would be who controls this particular house seat. Now, with margins of control narrow, the swing uh, races are important to national constituencies, not just to local constituencies, because the, the c- control of the institution is at stake. So that tight competition for power I think is inherently nationalizing and has given rise to all these national groups that play in congressional elections and move money around so that they can contest effectively the the swing seats, that that whole environment, I think, grows up as a product of competition rather than the causal arrow running the other direction.
2: Got it. So I'm getting this. So, so in your view, I'm, I'm getting this backwards that um, that it's competition that nationalizes politics, not nationalization of politics that leads to competition.
1: That's my view. Yes.
2: Got it. That, that, that's super interesting to me. So let's talk a bit about because I think that's actually a great bridge to, to sort of the meat of your work. And one reason I want to have you on the show right now, you know, with a new congress in and, and you know, po- politics way it is. How does a more competitive political atmosphere change the incentives for politicians and, and for parties and how they act I
1: think it has a wide- ranging set of effects and that's basically what the, my book uh, insecure Majorities is about I sort of take for granted that politicians uh, are reacting to a changed competitive environment that they that they experience it that way as something that they don't control but that in turn shapes their uh, shapes their incentives. One effect is that it uh, it narrows the time horizon that politicians have to think in uh, short-term increments. That uh, party control might shift in uh, in the next two years. That American politics we hold elections so frequently that the time horizon is always pretty short. But it's but th- that. Uh, foreshortening of the time frame is intensified when it's not just a question of you know facing the voters in your own state or district, but where party control might shift. A second important change is that it reduces the incentives for bipartisanship, for bipartisan compromise, that an out party, a party not in power, needs to be able to make a case for its return to power. It has to say why it would do a better job and why those in power are messing things up. It's hard to make that case if you're working productively across party lines with them on policy issues. How do you say they're doing a bad job if you're working together, coming to compromise and voting together?
2: Can I have a quote that you gave in the book about this that I just think it puts such a sharp point on it? Um, you you quote the National Review, the conservative magazine, uh, in a editorial from right after Barack Obama is elected president. And they're counseling Republicans in Congress against working with Obama on anything, basically. And they write, if voters come to believe that a Republican Congress and a Democratic president are doing a fine job of governing together, why wouldn't they vote to continue the arrangement? And I think a lot of people hear that and they think, what jerks, you know, counseling, counseling Republicans against governing with Obama to to govern the country well. But also, Aren't they right? Like, rationally, I mean, if you think the best thing for the country is your party getting back into power and the way back to power is for people to think that the governing party is bad, like, isn't that just a system as we've set up? It's like being angry at football players for not cooperating with each other across teams to to help the other side score points.
1: Yes, those are just those are just the incentives. And you see Democrats confronting those same trade-offs now as they contemplate how to react to the Trump administration. That you know, should we cooperate if, uh, if the president offers uh, to move forward on something we care about? Should we be willing to work with the with the president to achieve something on, say, a major infrastructure package, or should we in, instead with, withhold support, r- you know, decline participation in order to heighten the contrasts, in order to make the case that the president is not doing a good job, or at least is unable to govern in a way that can command bipartisan support and therefore should be turned out of office. That th- that, I mean, those are real political trade-offs involved between participating in government versus clarifying the choice for voters.
2: I'm trying to think of the right way to ask this question, but as I read the theory here, and it seems correct to me, that you have a lot of quotes, um, particularly from the pre-1980 you know 1980 or New Kingrich era, Republicans are saying, look, the problem with Republicans in Congress right now is they're so used to being the minority party. They, they don't believe they're going to become the majority. So they just cooperate with Democratic chairmen because their best possible outcome is congressional Democrats. Like, give them some crumbs, right? They give them a seat at the table. But that, as soon as it becomes truly competitive, and you can get get back into power, your best strategy is not cooperating with the, the the other party. It's, as you say, destroying the other party. And it seems to me that that what that means is that bipartisanship is fundamentally irrational. That in a zero sum political context where we have elections where one side can only one side can win, and the other side will lose, like by definition, if the if the first side wins. That the fundamental thing that our system often needs to govern well, which is bipartisanship, given all of our veto points, that it's irrational. It's actually like it's a it, you'd almost have to be crazy to do it under normal competitive conditions.
1: I mean, uh, those are the implications that uh, competition does undercut the incentives to 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 work across party lines. Now, I would say I think that incentive structure is more pronounced for the party that has less institutional power. Presidents can get some mileage out of triangulation, out of, uh, you know, know, reaching out to try to win bipartisan assent. Now, they need to do so in a way that would avoid alienating their own base voters. But if they are able to do so, um, then that gives them additional legitimacy. In other words, if they're able to get bipartisan support for what they want to do that's a feather in their cap so you'd expect more bipartisanship on the part of the party within power but whether the out party whether the party with less institutional power is willing to grant that that's another question and it's not it's not in their interest a lot of the time to work cooperatively because it undercuts their ability to make the case for their own return to power
2: And isn't that a very important part of the incentives as the minority party understands them? Something that it always seemed to me that Mitch McConnell understood well in the Obama era was that voters would blame the party in power for the absence of a governing bipartisan majority, but it was the party out of power that actually controlled the resource of bipartisanship. And when you have that kind of disjuncture between accountability and um, like a, a capability, you get the kind of outcomes we have here because whether or not people want bipartisanship, um, if the reality is that they're always going to blame the party in power for not getting it, then it's really, really a ass- like y- you would imagine that the, the binding constraint here is the, the minority party doesn't want to be blamed for being partisan and obstructionist. But if they if they don't get blamed for being partisan and obstructionist, because that's not how people think about this, they like just blame whoever holds the presidency for whatever is going on. Um, Yeah. Then why not obstruct everything all the time?
1: I I mean, I do think that there is that um, sort of knee jerk assumption that a lack of bipartisanship means that those with more power are not doing their part in reaching out or trying to accommodate. But, you know, it takes two to tango and we need to pay pay attention to the incentives of the uh, the party with less institutional power, and whether um, they have their own reason not to participate, even if
2: uh, good faith outreach is made. So this seems to me to get us to I, I both think like very rich and very tricky territory. And this is I think more than anything like why so much why I've learned so much from your work and why I so badly wanted you on the show. I think both in your book Beyond Ideology and 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 in this newer book. You're taking aim at pretty fundamental assumptions that govern certainly how the media covers politics, but I I think also like how a lot of voters understand politics. And the core one here seems to me to be that we can't have a competitive zero sum election system grafted on to a system of governments that requires compromise to work. And expect the thing to function. And that when it doesn't function, we tend to blame individuals. We say Barack Obama isn't reaching out enough or Mitch McConnell is being obstructionist or whatever it might be, depending on your, you know, which perspective you come at it from. And obviously I have my views about which of those is correct. Like I think Mitch McConnell was obstructionist. But I think we blame individuals without Focusing really on the system, it seems to me if you just listen to the media and voters that they they would like Washington to work better and by work better they mean something like agree more and like come together more. But you can't get that by changing out the individuals. If the system like encourages this kind of behavior, then you're going to keep getting it no matter who you switch out. And so it, it seems to me there's this very big disconnect between the way we want the system to work and the way our system is actually set up to work. But I never see anybody like anybody with a plan for changing that?
1: Well, I mean, the American political system has rock-solid legitimacy with the broad American public. There's no belief out there that there's something systematically wrong with the structure of American government. So political leaders don't criticize it. They don't don't think there'd be any purchase in doing so. And uh, very little by way of reform proposed at the systemic level, that it's just a widely held set of beliefs that if the system isn't working well, it's just the wrong people in it as opposed to something systematically wrong with the, with the, uh, with the institutions. Add on that it has a long history. I mean, we've you know the basic structure of American government has been in place now for more than two centuries. And so in light of that, We believe that it will, uh, you know, continue and it should continue and that you look back to landmark successes in American government and say, well, the system has functioned in the past. Why not now? It must be the wrong people. It's basically the same institution. It must therefore be the, the folks we've got in there now. Without instead thinking about how the system functions differently depending on political circumstances, and that the politics of the present moment are pretty toxic for bipartisanship, for compromise, and and that that has uh, a great deal to do with the intense, pervasive, knife's edge competition that uh, characterizes uh, the the battle for institutional control.
2: Do you buy the argument made by political sociologists, the late political sociologist Juan Linz? that the American political system, it basically shouldn't work, that a, a system where you have different branches being democratically elected and then going to war with each other with no way to, to resolve that, it shouldn't work, but it did in America because we had this weird, strange, aberrant political system where our parties weren't very ideologically polarized. So you had like conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, and you just you, you had a, a system where the ferocity of the competition was damped by the weirdness of the parties. But like now those parties have become polarized and they've become ideologically sorted. And so the fundamental contradictions of our political system are now coming to the fore.
1: Certainly it looks like we're in the middle of one of those contests of legitimacy right now that uh, that Lynn's described, that you have in this government shutdown that's ongoing. You have a president citing his legitimacy out of the 2016 election, that you know he was elected, um, building a wall was a central campaign promise, he, he must have it, he has to be able to deliver on that, and you have a Democratic majority in the House of Representatives uh, sent in 2018 in the midst of a campaign where uh, building the wall, and the migrant caravan played a big role, and yet they carried the majority. And so it's a contest right now of competing legitimacies, and, and they are at loggerheads in exactly the kind of way that uh, Lynn's described uh, would, would occur when you have cohesive parties that uh, each hold control of competing institutions, that under those circumstances, it's, you know, whose legitimacy should prevail and yet, as the questions posed right now, both cannot prevail and neither is prepared to concede.
2: This is uh, this is one of the opinions I hold that is very unpopular in liberal circles. But I think a lot about the Mitch McConnell Merrick Garland affair and the anger that Mitch McConnell, who had the votes. Right. And obviously, if he didn't have the votes, he wasn't going to be able to do that. But he had the votes. He, I think at that time, Republicans had 54, 55 seats in the Senate. And he did not want a liberal president, Barack Obama, to fill Antonin Scalia's Supreme Court seat. And what he did was unprecedented, and the way he justified it was clearly bullshit. But there's this question that this system itself raises, which is, what did he actually do wrong? Right? Aside from being a break with a lot of historical precedent for for and not give Garland a hearing, why should we expect an ideologically distinct coalition, a conservative coalition in this case, to clear a democratic or left of center um, Supreme Court justice. I mean, we did in the past. It happened in the past. So that seems to be why we do it. But like if you if you backed out, it's not how we think other legislation is going to go. Right. Uh, Not how we expect Congress to act on other important matters of, of, of ideological consequence. And that's kind of space of legitimacy, which is, I think, an important word for you to bring into this conversation, seems really uh, significant to me. It, what McConnell did feels illegitimate. In some ways, I think was philosophically illegitimate, but it's clearly was like within his power in the system. And it's also clearly the incentives of the underlying system itself. And there's this increasing gap, it feels to me, between how we think American politics should work on a values level. And how the rules are actually set up for it to work if both sides are maximizing their leverage and their their power and their ideological uh, purity. And as that gap grows wider, it's creating a legitimacy crisis. But in every individual case, the politicians in question can turn around and say, I, you, you gave me this power. Like, this is what the rules say. Like, I don't know what your problem is.
1: Right. I mean... What McConnell did made all the sense in the world relative to the voters that elected the Republican majority to the Senate, that with um, with judicial nominations playing a central role in the campaign promises that Republicans make. But what his action does is it poses the question of how divided government can work, because it's, it does. it's not limited only to the Supreme Court, that how can the president make his executive branch appointments? How can he run an executive branch if he cannot get his appointees confirmed? And yet a president facing a a different party, another party in control of the Senate, that party doesn't want to confirm the sorts of people that the president would want. So our system relies to, to a great extent on a kind of forbearance that where even though the party in control of the Senate has the ability to deny the president appointments to the executive branch and to the judiciary just doesn't go all out, exercises influence, but does not, across the board, withhold assent. So, what Obama did under those circumstances is the sort of thing that presidents usually do is they try to take into account what sort of person would be acceptable to the the opposing party in control of the Senate. And in choosing Merrick Garland, he chose someone who had a reputation for uh, moderation and centrism and uh, someone who was older and therefore wouldn't hold the, the, the Supreme Court seat for a long time. Those were openings that he overtures he made. But the fundamental problem was that potential control of the Supreme Court seemed to be in play. And Republicans were not prepared to give uh, over Antonin Scalia's seat. And so the president was just told that this matter would be decided in the elections. And you know, if we carry this logic through, it raises the question of how divided government can function at all, even though, of course, divided government is our normal state of affairs in American politics.
2: This seems to me to relate very directly back to your thesis, which is that competition makes both sides more ruthless. It makes both sides act to maximize their power as opposed to to exercise forbearance. I don't have proof of this, but I think that if what had happened um, in 20, I guess it was 2016 that that, uh, Scalia died, is that Ginsburg had retired. I think there is some possibility with, there not really being a competition there for control of the court. It would have just been like the status quo as we had it that Garland could have gotten through. I can't say that for sure. I think there's also a chance McConnell does the same thing, but I think there's at the very least a a possibility of it. I think that in general, the two sides are much more open to the status quo on the court continuing than they are to things that could flip control or, or, or or flip um, further power towards one party or the other. and, Similarly, in everything we're talking about here with the way uh, McConnell acted there, this kind of constant competition for control of of the Senate and the House seems really important. I, I love the word forbearance here. It seems so important to me. You have this quote uh, from John Boehner in a 2006 letter to House Republicans where he says, and I believe this is a letter where he's actually running for, for re- the Republican leadership position. He says, what is the job of a Republican leader in the minority? it's to hold the job for as short a time as possible. And if you don't believe you're going to be able to get out of the minority, well, then maybe the job is to make sure Republicans have as much power as they can and to exercise forbearance and other things. But if you can get out of the minority, there's no time for forbearance. You have to get out of the minority. Like That is job one. And it seems to be a reasonable way of like saying the way Congress actually works in periods of competition is job one is winning your personal reelection, two is winning the majority, and governing is like somewhere lower. But... It seems to me forbearance and competition are are in, like, almost perfect opposition.
1: Yes. It just makes sense that if you think that after the next set of elections, you might be in power, why cut a deal now? That you'll you'll have more power later, and so, you know, the per- pervasive tendency in American politics to kick the can down the road on major issues, I think, owes something to this competitive context as well, where you can't get to a resolution of issues because the power struggle is still ongoing. That uh, elections really don't settle anything. That the party that loses doesn't really think it's going to be out
2: for very long. The Ezra Klein Klancher will be back after a short break. This is a bit more of a philosophical question, but there's a an often unexamined intuition in our system that bipartisanship is a good thing and that ideas that have bipartisanship behind them are good things. And I'm curious what you think of that, because it does seem to me that in like a conceptual party system, what you have is parties representing quite different ideas, and in another system, the party with power would just be able to put its ideas into play, and then the party out of power could critique them, and that there's this kind of clarity in the choices. And in American politics, we seem to want parties that don't offer clear choices. We used to have that, so maybe that's part of why we like it. But is there any reason, conceptually, to think that, putting aside the fact that our system requires bipartisanship to work, given its veto points and the filibuster and whatever else, is there any reason to think that bipartisanship actually makes systems work better, that it should be such a high value that we try to build it into the very functioning of our system versus simply saying "eh, bipartisanship is illogical. We want to have different views, like like let the parties be partisan and let whoever has power just govern.
1: Well, I would say we we can't fully set aside the fact that the system requires bipartisanship that, you know, the system was not designed with parties in mind. Parties grew up within the system, but uh, when the framers put the constitutional system together, they did not plan for parties to play the kind of role that they play. So the complex division of power, bicameralism, separation of powers between Congress and the president that tends to require the parties to work together because there are so many veto points, almost any organized opposition can stop things from happening, much less organized partisan opposition. But in, at the, uh, to you know, try to make a normative case for bipartisanship on other grounds, I'd say we need to set it in the context of the American electorate, where both parties are minority parties, that n- neither party garners the trust of, a, of most Americans. And so under those circumstances, A party governing on narrow party lines is provoking huge backlash because there's the other party in the electorate, and then there's also a large share of voters who don't like or trust either party that well. They may not, uh, they may have a tendency to prefer one party over the other in their voting behavior, but they refuse to align themselves publicly with a party, then they are suspicious of parties, period. That parties are partial; it's not the national interest; it's a partisan interest. That that's how they're that's how parties are seen, and so bipartisanship helps to to, to transcend that legitimacy problem, the legitimacy problem that of effectively two major parties that are both minority parties.
2: So I, I like that idea of them both being minority parties. I think that's important. And, and it relates to something I wanted to ask you. I'm very interested in the way political identity is expanding and strengthening in America. And you don't talk that much about political identity in the book. But I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, knowing the literature as you do, if you think this period of intense competition leads to changes in political identity or validation or reinforcement of political identity.
1: I think uh, it it raises the salience of partisan identities, this intense, this period of intense competition. It's uh, you know, rivalry tends to do that in all realms of life. Why not in politics as well? So, yes, I do think it makes it makes that contest for power more visible for people. They think about parties more. There's so much more coverage of parties. In the lead up to congressional elections, for example, most of the news articles are about the prospects of change of party control one institution or another. That's not how congressional elections were historically covered in the uh, in the news. That they used to be about individual races or about what was going on in different regions of the country. Because, of, of course, because of the party control was not in play. That the fact that it's in play means that the, the salience of which party wins is uh, is raised, and so there's so much more attention to that, which I think you know does play into rivalries and helps to cement people's commitments to the, their partisan identities, at least for those um, for those Americans who have a partisan identity.
2: So another piece of this that I think is interesting. So I've recently had a conversation, although I think it may come out after this one, with the neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky, who studies stress and and, and the way anxiety affects um, primate and, and, and human brains. And he talks about how when studying primates, if you're in a period where the hierarchies are unstable, it changes like who feels stress. All of a sudden, people in power and dominant people feel a lot of stress and anxiety, and stress and anxiety it reduces short-term planning, and it can make you angrier, and it has all these sort of bad downstream mental effects. And it really made me think a lot about your book, which is that for a long time, another way of almost saying what you're saying, to get it out of the competition language, is that America had very stable political hierarchies. People knew what their, the parties knew what their places were, more or less, and so they could kind of relax into it and plan on longer time horizons and act more calmly and had a little bit more space in which to interact with the other party and figure out what they wanted to do. But now they don't. The Like the political hierarchy is constantly unstable and constantly changing. And so everybody feels that like that stress of volatility all of the time with all the things that, that stress and threat due to due to the human mind. I'm I'm curious if you think that's true. Your your book focuses a lot on institutional behavior, but obviously to some degree institutional behavior is built out of the behavior of individuals. And you've spoke to a lot of individuals for the project. Do you think that this changes sort of how individuals see themselves and each other and just like the daily like level of cortisol in their bloodstream to constantly be in this war for control?
1: That's a super interesting idea. Uh, You know, I I wrote that book. It's published on an academic press, uh, and uh, I stuck within my area of expertise as a political scientist, so I wrote about institutions and uh, incentives. But the psychology that you're pointing to makes a great deal of sense to me and suggests that I need to spend a little time taking into account this broader context in which struggle for power Shapes uh, emotions and psychology and identity and and things that you know go a little bit outside of what we normally uh, deal with as institutionally focused uh, political
2: scientists. The the one that I think about a lot is planning. It seems to me that the kind of time horizon on which you can plan is really important. And one, we know that stress like, acts on the human brain, such that you have less working memory and you know, deferring gratification now to get something later becomes much harder. But just if you have no idea what politics is going to look like in four or six years, it creates, it seems to me, this inability to defer something now for later, this inability to say, yeah, maybe we're not going to win this one without doing something really awful, like, say, the Merrick Garland situation. But you know, it's worth it. Like, well, like the, the the system is important, right? Like the ability to treat something, um, as you're playing for 20 or 50 year posterity versus the ability to treat it like what you do now is the only thing that matters. You hear this in business a lot with like the, the focus on like quarterly earnings reports, but it, it seems to me to be true in, in politics too, that, you know, we, we talk about competition and the way that the parties are acting against each other, but just something happening there as well is that they can't, they can't plan like everything is about the next election and that just raises the stakes of everything that that kind of willingness to let the other party win or accept something not going the way you wanted it to now it's like you can't do that you got to shut down the government you got to threaten the debt ceiling you gotta like you know not even give merrick garland a hearing like you can't have any weakness because there's no you're not you're not playing for the long term and so you don't care about the long term of the system like you're playing for right now and to be in power next year
1: yeah. So that, that's looking at the, you know, the insecurity that those in power continually experience. I mean, they're, they're hanging on by their fingernails. You know, they do not have secure institutional control. And so this does make it hard to think about what you're going to do down the road. It's just a matter of surviving in power. And so that constant preoccupation with the power struggle. That I think is something political scientists and you know those of us who think about you know uh, you know how elections are supposed to work in democratic politics haven't taken uh, sufficient account of, just that you know we we tend to celebrate electoral competition as a way to provide accountability, and uh, you know to incentivize politicians to consider the effects of what they do because they'll be held accountable, but the downside is that when you have this constant intense competition is that politicians are continually preoccupied with politics, with their stakes, with their ability to hold on to power, with how, with messaging, with, um, with their image, as opposed to being able to think about, you know, what they actually want to do with power.
2: So I want to talk about, um, we've been talking, I think, primarily here about Congress. I want to talk about the presidency, and in this case, President Trump, for a couple of minutes. So I think that something something I learned from your book beyond ideology is that we have some wrong ideas about how presidential power works and particularly how it probably works in periods of divided government that the opposition party becomes more likely to oppose anything the president takes a position on because the president is a leader of the party they're they're in conflict with and that seems like a hard thing, even for presidents who are used to trying to appeal to the other side, like uh, George W. Bush or Barack Obama uh, in different ways in their careers. Um, I, that's something like even they, I think, have trouble with. They feel that to get something done and divide a government, they should go out and give speeches and and raise a salience of it. But Donald Trump really seems to feel that way. Like He really does not seem to me to have a mode that is not rallying his own side. And it strikes me, at least if you think about – if you believe that part of the job of the president is to get his agenda passed into law or as much of it as possible, that Donald Trump is almost uniquely unsuited for a period of divided government, that he almost has like nothing in the toolbox for what do you do when – you taking a position makes it less likely that your idea can get through Congress. I'm, I'm curious how you think about Donald Trump in a Beyond Ideology framework.
1: Well, I do think you've seen the kind of dynamics described in Beyond Ideology playing out in the Trump years, even though I, I agree with you that that I I, I don't think uh, President Trump has been focused particularly on winning over fence-setters or uh, opponents to his position. But even with that said, you see exactly the kind of polarization of opinion on issues with which the president is associated, where the out party, the party that the president doesn't control, in this case, the Democrats move, their issue positions change in reaction to presidential leadership and change in contrary ways. That it is the case that a public opinion among Democrats used to be more favorable towards um, a border wall or border barriers than it is now. Basically, you know, the public opinion on that among Democrats shifted very hard against uh, against border barriers after Trump entered the presidential race. So he, certainly as a president, there's no Democratic support for that. But there used to be a more openness to that idea when it was last party, when it was not part of a party program. You also see Democrats shifting their position and becoming somewhat more favorable towards troops abroad, foreign intervention, more favorable towards uh, troop presidents in Syria than they were. Uh, So you see Democrats reacting against. Now, you also see the same sort of pattern where the president is able to lead his own party, even though he can't lead the the opposing party. So you see change in uh, uh, opinion among Republicans on issues like free trade or attitudes towards uh, international alliances or towards uh, 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 Russian President Putin, that you see you know, Republican attitudes shifting in those ways uh, to align better with the president who they support. But that polarization in a system that requires bipartisanship to function most of the time, in fact, even in unified government, bipartisanship is necessary because of the filibuster in the Senate that polarization makes the president's job more difficult that when they take a position that it tends to alienate the, um, the, the opposing party.
2: Do you think persuasion of the other party for a president, the persuasion of the party they're not the leader of is even possible nowadays on any large scale? I mean, after the experiences of Bush, Obama, Trump, we have an idea that one thing presidents are supposed to do is persuade is that idea just like wrong is that just a like a like an artifact of a of an old understanding of political psychology and and party and party dynamics
1: i think what presidents are able to do is not persuade people who are opposed that they can from time to time take advantage of a permissive consensus where the public says do something we have to have something done on x or y I say for example, post nine eleven, and that presidents can take advantage of that. Then they can propose the something, and that can be seen as the uh, that's the proposal on the table. And in the context of a public that wants to see something happen, then they can um, they can strike while the iron is hot, so to speak, on those issues. But it's not moving public opinion. It's not sw- it's not turning people around from the positions they currently hold. Uh, It's more opportunistic than that.
2: That seems, in a way, very depressing. Uh, I think so much of our stylized model of politics is that there's an argument to be had, and if you have the better side of the argument, you can win it. And, like, you know, White Houses have all these speechwriters, and, like, there's such an architecture of persuasion that exists out there. But if you can't do it, if you can't persuade people, and you have have very frequently divided government— in a system that requires some level of bipartisanship or consensus to operate. It just sounds to me like what we're saying here is that the American political system is going to be functionally inoperable for just large swaths of time and possibly increasingly large going forward as the parties continue to polarize. And like, maybe that's fine with us, but if it's not, like, maybe we've got some rethinking to do. Is that, is that like a fair summation of the, of where all this leaves us?
1: I would say it's true on the party programmatic issues, the issues around which campaigns turn, the highest salient, issues of highest salience in American politics. This gridlock is very pervasive, very difficult to do anything, very hard to get a breakthrough on those issues. But there are a lot of issues that don't have that status And so American government is not inoperative a lot of the time. It's just not operating. It's not resolving the issues that those of us who follow politics pay a great deal of attention to it, care about outcomes. We're not seeing the outcomes that you'd want to see, you know, that—but recalling that most Americans don't pay very close attention to politics, most people are not highly engaged much of the time, the government is functioning tolerably well from that vantage point. It's not achieving programmatic policy outcomes. But it's doing things. I mean, The 115th Congress did, did a fair bit uh, under, uh, under Speaker Ryan, setting aside the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which is their, their big partisan programmatic achievement, didn't get anything else, could not repeal and replace Obamacare despite devoting nine months of effort to it. But they did a lot of other lower profile policy initiatives during during that Congress uh, on issues that simply don't deeply divide the parties. So on the opioid crisis or on water infrastructure, on sex trafficking, that there was legislation wasn't on the front pages, um, but uh, stuff was happening. Uh, American government was not shut down. And I'd say that that's 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 how it normally works. It's it's a divide government, and even short of divide government, just given just given veto players, parties are subject even when they have uh, majority power. Parties are subject to the other party's
2: veto. Is a way of of turning that almost into a rule to say that attention polarizes. So if you're in a situation where what you need to do to achieve your goal is to like get your coalition spun up on something that you'd want to give it a lot of attention but if not you want it to be one of these issues as you're saying that it goes through congress and nobody really pays any attention to it that if that the only sort of condition under which bipartisanship um and even in some cases you know just partisan operation that gets past a filibuster or whatever is plausible is um, a condition in which the parties and the public and particularly the media are not focused on it and so you know, we always think of presidential strategies and political strategies as being raising attention on issues, but there's actually a much broader set of issues where almost what you want to be doing is distracting attention from them. You know, you want to be causing some like crazy fight over who knows what over here. So like over there, an opioid bill can sneak through with nobody paying uh, uh, close attention to it.
1: Yes. I mean, if an issue comes to be seen as associated with a president such that the president's performance in office is benchmarked against their ability to resolve that issue, then that sets off that political incentive on the opposing party, which is we can't give the president a win because that's validating him and his party in power. So if issues can fly below the radar, if they are not seen as a test of the president's performance, then more progress is possible, sometimes even on very contentious issues just points to the passage of the toxic substances control act under obama in divided government this was a major expansion of the authority of the epa that both that republicans and democrats came together on environmentalists and industry came together on this is it created it, it, that that act created its own funding stream for the for that new division of the epa and yet that was not—it didn't make front-page news. It was a very quiet negotiation. In fact, it was about a 10-year-long negotiation. There's a, a new short book out with Cambridge University Press by Larry Rothenberg de- describing how that negotiation uh, took place and how it was brought to successful fruition. And yet that's on environmental policy where it's hard to think of an issue that's more uh, more difficult for Republicans and Democrats to agree on, and yet it did happen. But you didn't see the president going out on the campaign trail on that
2: issue. I think that may be. I think that may be our most optimistic point, or at least a constructive point that we can close on. So let me ask you the our final question, always on this podcast, which is: What are three books on this topic or others that have influenced you over the years that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Well, I'll, I'll just focus on three recent books that I would I would recommend uh, on understanding these kinds of uh, these kind of dynamics. So first, I'd, I'd recommend David Mayhew's. 2017 book, The Imprint of Congress. This is about Congress's role in responding to major political challenges throughout U.S. history. It is, despite the subject matter, a slim volume, something that you could sit down and read in a couple of hours. It deals with, you know, what was the role of Congress in major challenges that the United States government faced, whether launching a new nation or, you know, continental expansion or um, taming the corporations or creating a welfare state. And then he points to of distinctive imprints of what, you know, what does Congress add? What does, what does, what has Congress contributed? Uh, I'll just flag a couple just for your, uh, for your interest of your readers, of your listeners. That um, one is that Congress repeatedly throughout U.S. history tends to restrain executive ambition in international affairs. Congress more skeptical of invasions, expansions, annexations. Regardless of party, the president tends to be more ambitious in foreign affairs, and Congress tends to drag its feet. Congress likes incrementalism, uh, that it prefers incremental policy to the kind of big bang new policies that the executive branch favors. And finally, uh, Congress excels in forging compromise. That Congress prefers win-win outcomes. That you know, A lot of the time, it can't do anything. It's gridlocked. But when it acts, it's usually on a win-win basis. So it's very, very interesting and thought-provoking to think about what's distinctive about how our institutions function. Second book I recommend is um, Ira Katz-Nelson's 2013 book, Fear Itself, which is, uh, it's a history of Roosevelt's presidency and the New Deal. But it begins by setting out the broader context of the Great Depression, that There was a crisis of confidence in liberal democracy. This book, in in some ways, makes the book seem more relevant now than it did in 2013 when it came out. The protracted severity of the Great Depression led to a turning away from liberal and representative democracy to more autocratic forms of government like um, fascism, communism. There's more than a few echoes um, to our, our present. American democracy with the legislature and, the represent, and, and and representation at its heart was eventually preserved through this economic crisis and through the war, but that outcome was by no means assured. And so we, one can ask today whether liberal democracy can survive our current challenges, and certainly there's there are no assurances, but the, that book, I think, is helpful for thinking about those kinds of crises of institutional confidence. And last, I'd recommend Josh Chaffetz's book, Congress Constitution. This is also another book from 2017. This is a landmark book on the separation of powers and the role of the legislature. It traces the development of legislative-executive relationships back through U.S. history as well as through the 17th and 16th centuries in Great Britain. Yeah, but, uh, it you know, it illuminates these political relationships uh, separate from constitutional rules. That the legislature's power of the purse is not so much a legal relationship as it is a political one. That you know, looking back to uh, the you know, 17th and 16th century Great Britain, that the the crown doesn't need Parliament when it's able to finance its operations and its um, its activities on the basis of its own resources, its land and rents. But the poverty of the crown that forces it to go to the Parliament for assent for support. That the consent of Parliament, in turn, then rests on. The legislature having a say over appropriations, so that understanding that interplay and that political relationship, and it also offers a defense of the. This book offers a defense of the legislature based on vla- value pluralism, and so just just to uh, see a case made made for the um, uh, for allocating power to a legislature. What can a legislature contribute, and how how can these Interbranch conflicts play out in a way that is beneficial. That uh, helps us resolve in different intensities of preference. Helps us resolve conflicts where we have, you know, we face trade-offs among competing goods, and where there's no answer that won't involve some downsides. That this division of power makes deliberation possible. That it forces debate. And we don't always get to an outcome, but we, but when we do, um, that um, you know, issues have been hashed out in public in ways that would not happen in a system where power is not divided.
2: Francis Lee, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Lee for being here. Uh, thank you to Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley, to Jeffrey Geld at Vox Media. Uh, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.